0: All your base are belong to us.
1: Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and yes, I know Jamie Delano set up a rhyme scheme that makes it Constantine, not Constantine, but I am a creature of habit and you won't stop me. I'm
0: going to say Constantine the entire time. I'm a marketer and I didn't know that. I'll never say Constantine.
1: Yeah, it's in the in that in Del- and I'm pretty sure it's Delano. I watched an interview and he did not introduce himself, but the interviewer interviewer said Delano, so I'm going with Delano. Um anyway, uh in that final issue, he did with the duplicate Constantine, mm-hmm. the the rhyme scheme rhymes design with Constantine. Oh, and later in the series, I can't remember who which which writer it was, but it has him being like annoyed that everybody keeps saying Constantine instead of Constantine. It's like Bernstein,
0: <laughs> but it
1: Bernstein. is like Constant Constantine is what caught on. I'm sorry, I know I'm a fake hellblazer girl now but this is fake geek girls this is fake geek girls and this is what you get is me saying constantine i mean you get me saying constantine uh before (laughs) before we get into the episode i want to give a a thank you to our new patron amanda congratulations congratulations on joining the coolest group of people ever
0: yeah that's a, that's a fact. That's a fact. That's rock fact.
1: And I'm glad that you, that we did. So I messed up and I was supposed to thank Amanda in the last episode, but I forgot. Wow. So instead, she gets it in the Hellblazer episode, which she said was more appropriate. So welcome to your immortalization in the Hellblazer episode. Amanda Hellblazer. I don't know your last name. <laughs> Delano. You, now you can officially, you can be the Hellblazer too. Don't do that. Don't. don't do it don't do it
0: don't be anybody in these comics
1: yeah literally. but
0: <laughs> just don't be like literally no one
1: D- yeah literally no one. it's a bad time um but thank you for being a patron if you would like to join us on this is you the general you not amanda who has already joined us on patreon if you would like to become a patron uh as cool as amanda patreon.com slash girls uh for as little as a dollar a month you can be cool kid you can support us and you can get a shout out on the episode where we'll talk about, we'll I don't know, all about you. I don't know you very well, but I will talk about you anyway, which is just, you know, my MO. I don't know, I don't uh, know shit about shit, but I will talk about it anyway. So, Hellblazer. Um, if you've been here a while, you may know, I fucking love Hellblazer.
0: I didn't know. It's news to everybody. This, this just in folks, <laughs> Missy's a huge fucking nerd about Hellblazer. And,
1: uh, Loves John Constantine is up there with my favorite fictional characters. That's fair. I don't know that he's my absolute favorite, but he is a type of character that I love very much, which is self destructive, self hating, bisexual disaster in a trench coat. And <laughs> that sounds very specific, but there
0: are multiple of them. So it's a thing. It's a thing. Anyway, I, I want love Hellblazer. I'm a Taylor Swift type person, but only sing like. Like you know when she's like that style song when she's like she's got, <laughs> you that got that James Dean look in your eye. and so like you got that, I don't know whatever whatever would be for Constantine you got that asshole look in your eye and I got the, and you got that thrift store trench coat and then you got to be like and she wears the tight little skirt so you have to wear like blood <laughs> and I wear like the future me dying because of you look on my face. <laughs> perfect um i'm a songwriter yeah um
1: so yeah i love hellblazer and this is my reward for suffering through the vampire diaries It literally is and twilight this is this is my it's my time now
0: um so this is two hours of missy saying i like this
1: no i tried very hard to not do that um but that does mean this episode like I would say a third of this outline is not specifically about Hellblazer because I was, I was, questions kept coming up and I was like, you know what? These are good questions. Um, So we're, we're going to talk some about Hellblazer in this episode, but we're also going to talk about other things. The first thing being comic art and colors, Um,
0: because I really like comics. Um, But I think there are a lot of barriers for getting into them. That was one of the first things I talked to Missy about. I was like, this is hard to read for multiple reasons. And one of them is how this art and color is just, it's so much. It's so much. It like mm-hmm. overwhelms my eyes. Yeah. And and like part of, part, there's a
1: few things going on, especially in early Hellblazer. One of them is that I love Jamie Delano. I love his writing so much. I adore it. Some might say that he overwrites and the prose gets a little purple. Now I belong to the Angela Carter. Yeah, I write mm-hmm. purple prose. So fucking what school of reading? Which is weird. That's a weird thing to say. But I love it a lot, and I love the kind of film noir narration thing that Delano, Delano has going on for help
0: for Constantine. Um, I found that narration a lot easier to follow than the ones, the older ones, because I felt like there were like seven narrations I was having to follow. Well, that is uh,
1: Delano is the is the one who started all of that. Yeah, I
0: don't. That was hard. That's fair.
1: It's not for everybody. It is for me. It works for me, but that the the amount of narration and the kind of like opaqueness of the narration because it's like he's like talking about some shit that seems unrelated, uh, or like the depth of his feelings or something like that. That combined with the denseness of the artwork can make especially that first trade original sins very difficult to read. So I figured rather than going yeah it's kind of hard to read and then moving on, it would be worth talking about why it is the way it is. Now I can make no claims about Delano's writing. I don't know why he writes the way he does. He I, likes it. I like it. He presumably likes it. So there you have it. We like it, and our opinions are the only ones that matter. True. That's true. Um,
0: why you're listening?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but when it comes to the art, um, I mean, there's a lot of issues with getting into comics. One, just being like, where do you even begin, right? Because it can be <sighs> it can be difficult to know where a good place to begin
0: is, and there's like no right answer.
1: Yeah, because in all seriousness. You can just pick up a comic and and start anywhere. But that can be very intimidating and very difficult because a lot of times there's interconnected stories, you don't know what's going on, et cetera. So my answer for where to begin is pick one that looks interesting and start there. But, you know, if you want a cohesive story and it happens to be something like, Hellblazer, which does have trade paperback collections, starting with the first trade is a good place to go. But really, you can start with any trade. But the, what if there are two first ones? That is issues, not, oh, okay. not trades. Um, but uh, the, as far as the art goes, <laughs> when you look at comics printed before technology like digital coloring existed which is what we're talking about when it comes to early hellblazer um or before comics switched from because they were they used to be printed on literal newsprint right like the paper Makes sense yeah because they were they were not meant to be things that you held on to they were meant to be like oh fun pick up at the supermarket move on with your life
0: pick up constantine at the the supermarket it'll be fun right next to archie well they did not do that why not (laughs) why not um it we'll get, could be like an animorph thing. No one really thinks about it.
1: <laughs> we'll get we'll actually get into why that is. But um the news newsprint is very cheap, it's very absorbent, and it's not meant to last, right? Like you don't hang on to your newspapers, your daily newspaper. Oh, for the let me part. tell you, my mother in law does. Well, some people do, but for the most part, people don't hang on to like the daily newspaper. And if you try, the paper turns yellow over time. It gets kind of brittle.
0: Yeah, you have to preserve it. Yeah.
1: Um, It
0: feels cool and you're like, oh, this is so old.
1: It does. Now, over time, comics switched to the glossy paper that you see today. It has a different texture. The colors are much bolder.
0: When did they switch?
1: Um, It started, it it was over a period of time. Like the oldest comic that I have is the first issue of V for Vendetta. Don't ask me how I ended up with this. I mean, I know how I got it. I went to a (laughs) comic comic store and I bought it. I don't know why it was there. Um, but I have it and you can feel now that comic came out after it's not newsprint in that comic, but the texture of the paper is quite different. Oh yeah. Um, so now today, paper is glossier and coloring is often done digitally, meaning that there is a broader range of colors and printing technology has changed so that you can represent a broader number of colors on the page and the page is receptive to it.
0: So like the picture when he's in like the dreamland where it's like rainbows and unicorns yes. it would look terrible. Yes, it would look like shit. It, it would, would look, look, look like
1: shit. terrible. Um so this art can be, re- especially when you're looking at trades and we'll get into why it can be really hard to parse if you're not familiar with reading comics already. And there's a few reasons for this. So in the beginning of the hellblazer comics we read, which began publication in 1988, the same year I was born. Me, same, and, me too. We came into the it, Beetlejuice, me and Mary hellblazer at the most important events of 1988.
0: So 88 was really good. It's true.
1: Um, I think some bad things happened in 88, but we're not caring about those. It wasn't me. It wasn't us. Yeah. Um, so in, in this time period when these comics were, were coming out, they were created quite differently than they are today. So even today, comic teams, like the, the teams of people that put these together, um, it's often around four people doing distinct jobs. Mm-hmm. So there could be more than that, too. Like if you look at credits on early comics, it's like, like 10 people worked on a single issue. I still feel like it's a million people. It is still a lot of people, but it is the roles I think are a little bit more defined. But so you have a writer who is responsible for the script and then often giving sort of um directorial advice to the artist so like maybe doing a little sketch of like here's what you should see like in the way that you would look at a script for like a movie mm-hmm. and you would see like staging directions. Um that's kind of what the writer does. Then it goes to the artist um, who draws the panels themselves? Sometimes you have two people or multiple people doing this job because you have somebody doing pencils and then you have somebody doing inks, which are two different jobs. Pencils would be like the the main like I. So here's the thing: I'm not an expert on this, so don't don't take my word as gospel don't here. Don't at me. Don't at me. Um, pencils are like kind of not necessarily the rough part, but they are the um, the drawing that the inker, whether that's the same person or not, uses to put together the final colorless art that you see on the page. Um, you have a colorist who is responsible for adding the color. And sometimes you also have a flatterer who um, does like sort of color guidelines to make the colorist's job a little bit easier. And you have a letterer who actually adds the script, the bubbles, etc. because those things are not the artist's job. They, that job belongs to somebody else. And this creates a sort of assembly line pro- process, which leads to like faster production times in theory. Like Ford. Exactly. Um, Some people will do multiple things, but it is not unusual to have one person, one individual person in each role. And it also isn't unusual with DC and Marvel comics in particular, especially in the past to have these roles, not like chosen by editorial and not have them interact with one another. Mm -hmm. It is entirely possible that a writer for DC or Marvel would write the script, send it into their editor and then not see it again. Until the hmm. issue is printed and in their hand. Interesting. Um, that seems like a bad idea. This happened in Sandman. So in Absolute Sandman, Neil Gaiman talks about the fact that like he really wanted a specific arc to represent this female character not in a sexy way. And then when it showed up, she was in a sexy way. And he was yeah, very annoyed why. about that. Yeah. Um, so... Now, like back in this time, these creators would not necessarily ever speak to one another. Now, that's a little bit less likely because email, social media, et cetera, makes it a little bit easier to connect with your collaborators, file sharing, et cetera. But back in the day, that wasn't it wasn't guaranteed that you would ever see what was going on in the comic before it got to you. Was
0: it on purpose to be like, we don't want anything slowing this down? Because, I mean, how much money were the comics making these these companies? Um, I'm not sure about that. I wouldn't be surprised if it was like,
1: we want to go as fast as possible to get out the most amount of comics possible, but I don't know for certain. Because
0: I can't imagine, like, yes, I know comics makes obviously makes people money, but I can't imagine it's, like, big bucks off of, like, a comic. Well, let me tell you, it certainly
1: does not make the creators big bucks. <laughs> Uh, because none of these people own their work. Um, that sucks. This is not necessarily how Hellblazer was produced. I didn't find any information specifically on how, Bla- like how Hellblazer went from script to art to color to letters, etc. Um, but I do think it's important to understand that mainstream comics, we will get more specifically into Vertigo later, um, but they are an imprint of D- DC, so I'm still going to call them
0: mainstream. What's an imprint? I think is important. I was
1: going to get into that okay. later, but an imprint is basically like... DC is the company. DC also publishes Vertigo, but when you buy a Vertigo comic, you are looking for a distinct type of comic that is different from DC. So like, DC did not, or Vertigo did not use DC's branding. It was just Vertigo, but Vertigo was still owned by DC. So
0: it's like when I go onto DoorDash and I want something, I'm like, oh, this fresh stop looks good. I've never heard of it before, but it's really just Red Robin. Yes. But it's only fresh, fresh, quote in quotations, like healthy stuff. Yes. Okay, so it's an imprint of Red Robin. (laughs) They call those ghost kitchens.
1: Perfect. Um, So uh, I think it's important. It's it's, it's a it's a it's a rude trick. (laughs) I think it's important to understand that mainstream comics like these were not necessarily produced by a team with a singular vision. So comics in this era and in preceding eras were also printed on paper that is not as glossy and capable of bright colors as it is, as it is today. Like the paper quality is just very different. Uh, And some of that is reflected in the price. Like back in the day, you know, a comic might cost 80 cents or something, Mm -hmm. and now they cost $3.99, $4.99, $5.99. Um part of that is companies want to make more money and part of that is production costs have gone up um because they were working with ink so ink and light have two different methods of interacting when it comes to color Mm -hmm. ink uh is primarily like when you're printing they primarily use four colors cmyk so i think it's cyan i don't actually know how to say it Uh, i have no clue cyan yellow magenta and k which stands for key um what else would it be? Key is key is black. So you can print in those four colors, and when you print those colors together, um, you can make different color combinations. Usually, like back in the day, they would print with like just very small dots, um, and that gives the illusion of multiple colors. Um, so on the paper, these four colors would print in a way that was often quite muted because you're working with a paper that is not actually white, right? Like when you look at a newspaper. It is not white. It is gross gray. It is like a gray, maybe a little brown. Like it's not a. It's not white. Um, So Zoe D. Smith uh, at Women Write About Comics wrote this really incredible article called "For Colorism or the Ashiness of It All." Um, And Smith does this really amazing job examining how the limitations of the paper quality and the available colors um, affected representations of black Mm. skin in comics, uh, often making black characters look green. Interesting. They straight up look green on the page. It's a really great piece. I'll link it in the show notes and you should definitely check it out. Like Smith does an amazing job and like the visual representations really help. Um, Smith also points out that white skin was not colored at all. You just didn't color it because the color of the paper suggested white skin without you needing to add anything to it. There's no reason to print white. No one's gone tanning. Um, It could be left bare because the color of the paper suggested white skin as opposed to you needing to print and also I don't know so about white ink but anyway now we don't use this kind of paper anymore right and digital coloring allows for like an incredible range of colors to be used but old comics were not produced with these techniques meaning that when we try to reproduce these older comics on new paper mm-hmm. we are using the original art and the original co- and the original colors it looks odd to say the least, now here we come up against one of the limitations of an audio medium, which is that I have two panels that have <laughs> from a comic and I'm going to have to describe them to you to the best of my ability um, I, I pulled them from in a heavy metal article about should old comics be recolored ever um, which <laughs> is a hot topic in in comics, but do you think so I have mixed feelings on it and, okay. and I'll kind of get into why um, but in this article, the author uses two panels from Thor, which is by Walt Simonson, recolored and original. So the original version, um, the skin on it, they're just white, right? Because they've used the original colors that existed. Um, Thor's cape is bright red. Uh, His pants are bright blue. I don't know who's in the green there, but it's, it's hard to look at, right? It's hard to know where to look. It's really garish. You, you don't know where your eye is supposed to go because these bright colors are drawing your eye in different directions. And it looks really unreal in a way that can make it hard to read if you are not already familiar with this art style. Um, and the reason for that is because it is made using the original colors and line art with no changes, reproduced on paper that it was not meant to be produced on, right? Because we're using a completely different... I mean, not only, is it not, not only is it reproduced here, but it's reproduced on a screen.
0: Mm-hmm. So... We're getting, like, the brightest, crispest white. I feel like when you look at, like, representations in, like, pop culture... In situations where comics are like not popular, like uh, trying to like on a movie or something about something serious, the second one is what the comic usually looks like.
1: Yes, and that is because they're, they're we're looking at the original artwork. Now on top, you have a modern recoloring of the scene, which is much easier to look at and to parse. You can tell they've color they've colored in the skin, they've muted down some of the really garish colors, and it's a lot easier to tell where your eye is supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because the the person who has recolored it has gone through and made adjustments to it with the intent that of preserving the artist's original vision, but making it comprehensible to modern readers. Um, because recoloring, here's the thing though, recoloring is often done by somebody other than the original artist. It is not necessarily done by the person who originally colored it, and it becomes a really contentious topic because. Is it helping make comics more accessible or is it destroying the vision of the original colorist? Like it's complicated, especially when the original colorist isn't available or isn't consulted on what recoloring might look like to stay Mm -hmm. true to their vision. There's no guarantee, especially when we're looking at Marvel and DC, because most of the work is is produced work for hire, meaning that Mm -hmm. the creators are paid for their contribution, but they do not own it. So they can reproduce it however they want. They can do whatever the fuck they want with it without ever mentioning it to the creators. Um, that's how those companies work. Um, so it is, it is entirely possible that if a comic is recolored DC or Marvel could decide we're going to reproduce this comic, but we're going to hire somebody else to do the colors. And I don't give a shit if you like it. It's it's, we make the decisions here. Um, so you are in like if that happens in a sense you are overtaking the work of the original creator and potentially changing their vision for the page, and sometimes it looks good and sometimes it looks like utter shit. Like,
0: I like the, the example.
1: Yeah, I think I think that that is a that's a solid example. There's all I
0: can see in the original is that fucking red cape.
1: Yeah, it your eye goes directly to it like you're a fucking bull and Thor's a matador. Um, Kinda but when you like there are some other comics for absolute sandman sandman was recolored for the absolute editions and i don't like a lot of it i think that it, the original is is hard to read at times um but the i don't think a lot of the recoloring does it justice i think it looks it looks modern but slapdash to me in a lot of places not everywhere but some places um so and part of the issue here, too, is that colors are really undervalued in comics, which
0: is crazy to me, because like, that's such a huge part, right? It's such a visual thing. And I find that if the art like the art really, sometimes um, I found that if the art wasn't done in a way that still told the story, it mm-hmm. made it really like when I was reading it, it made it feel like I was just reading random Blurbs. Yes. And it has to. And I think that I was thinking about that a lot. I feel like because I, there are some points I'm like, why does it feel like I'm reading r- random blurbs when I, when I read a book, it doesn't feel that way. And it's everything in between that's a picture that gets me to the next spot. So if yes. that art isn't good, it makes it.
1: So difficult. And that and that's especially hard with these early comics, too, because the coloring is like they were not necessarily working as a team.
0: Yeah.
1: And I mean, they were working as a team, but not necessarily in communication mm-hmm. with one another. And now you also have the additional barrier of these comics not being recolored. So they're printed on new paper, which means that the colors are not serving the same purpose that they were originally. Yeah. So, comic, like I said, colorists really undervalued in the comics industry. They are often not credited on the front page of a comic the way that artists and writers are. Uh, people assume that the job of a colorist is easy or unimportant to how a comic is read. You're
0: just coloring.
1: But if you see a poorly colored comic, you can start to see why a good colorist is so important. Uh, yeah. Color helps us understand what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. So I have a, I'll have put a link in the show notes, um, but you can click through Mary here. Uh, this is some of Aaron Campbell's uncolored line art from his time on Hellblazer. Um, and I'll describe it to you, uh, to you, the listener, not to Mary, who can click it herself. Um now Aaron Campbell's a really, really gifted, incredible incredible artist. Uh, he was the artist on the newest the one that we read, the Marks of Woe and uh, a better version so of this you. This is
0: uncolored? This
1: is uncolored. Um and when you look at it, you could like he has this he there's a lot of shading, right? There are different shades happening here. There's a lot of like um texture added to the page to make it uh Parsable. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can see what's I going what on in the page. But when you look at it without Jordi Belair's colors, and Jordi Belair is just an incredible colorist. Like just fucking phenomenal. Um, I find when I look at Aaron Ca- Campbell's uncolored line art, it is it's beautiful, but it's considerably harder to parse than the it is. Shack. Yeah, it's it's harder to parse than it is with Jordi Belair's colors. Jordi Belair's colors help guide your eye. Um, they also make suggestions about what's happening. Like one of the best examples of this is the the mermaid issue, the, the final panel of the first issue, which is when you discover that the mermaid is pregnant and it's all done in, in this beautiful blue, but she is also uh, cut up uh, so from like the bottom of her tail down. And it's all blue except for this like, Red that not only stands out from the blue, but also like draws your eye and signifies pain. So if you looked at that panel without color, it would still be effective, right? Like you would be able to tell what's going on, but mm-hmm. Jordy Belair's colors add an additional dimension to it that takes it from like a really cool drawing to like this like, oh my god, you're telling a whole
0: story here just yeah. with the colors. The the uncolored one that we looked at, it's beautiful. It's it's really it's really cool. If I had but if I'm reading <laughs> <laughs> if I had that money,
1: I would fucking shell out for one of these pages, because I, I didn't look love how much it is.: They're how? very
0: expensive. Really quickly.
1: The colors really add something here. Campbell is an incredible artist who does really wonderful work with shading. And I think that makes it easier to parse than some other artists. Like, if you look at art without any color, Mm -hmm. it can be quite difficult to parse. But it
0: still has that issue of, like, being so overwhelmed. And, like, I don't know if this is just a me issue of, like... But when I get, like, super... I can get really easily overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by by so much. And that was an issue I had with a lot of the early ones, is there was so much going on. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have... When you just have like that, like I said, that art is really beautiful. But if I had to read letters over it, it would be really difficult yeah. for me.
1: And that's why that's why letterers and colorists are so important because their job is to bring that part of it mm-hmm. out. And in in that series, you have just an incredible team, like that team working together phenomenal every issue looked and felt amazing and you also have another artist on that one uh, uh, Matias Bergara who also is incredible and he he brings a very different feel to his art mm-hmm. um, he did the more dreamier issues and the ones with Tommy Willowtree. tree um, <laughs> I
0: liked I liked that art, but like I was saying yeah. before, it wouldn't have worked for The Mermaid Story. Exactly, exactly. And, and I
1: think that series does a really wonderful job of showing like how important art and color and letter lettering is to telling a specific kind of story.
0: Well, even like, it's definitely a more modern, like, more modern looking comic in those ones, but it works because also Willow, Mr. Willowtree <laughs> is modern. He's, he's, yes. he's, he's a modern character within this, and he's... Yes an absolute idiot who shouldn't talk <laughs> but I love him and yeah. I would
1: jump his bones I love to hate him my that's fair my opinion of Tommy Willowtree is much the same as Constantine's and where I'm just like this fucking guy um, so while people don't often pay attention to colors while reading it's not something that you're like oh beautiful it's just it That's not how a lot of people read comics when you don't have them and the art is not intended to be black and white because there are some beautiful black and white comics. There Um, was
0: a Constantine story. The the alternate universe was mostly black and white.
1: Yeah. Um, Or when the colors aren't meant for the medium you're reading. So when you're reading, you know, these reproductions or when you're reading an old comic on a screen. Um, you can see how important good coloring is to telling telling an effective comic story. Well, even with that black and white one, that was the one where I'm like, I
0: literally don't know what I'm
1: <laughs> that was a, happening. I think that I think that was a Dave McKeon one. Um, I am so confused. Dave McKean is an incredible artist. Like he's he's really really good. But I it do was beautiful. F- I find his art very difficult to parse, and I I think he does this kind of like he has this kind
0: of dreamy abstract style. Well, like one of the things when I was talking to Missy about it, I was like, I don't know what's going on. The art is beautiful, though. There are t- like, and that whole that whole story is a bit abstract
1: and it's so it was a lot detached from reality. It's Really difficult. It is. It is. It's a tricky
0: one, but I could finish it, unlike the pig one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so when you have like this disconnect between like the art or the me- the media that you're reading on, um, you can see how important colorists are to crafting you know a comic story if a story is meant to be told with color again there are some really beautiful black and white comics um so and part of what makes these early comics in the sense of hellblazer like in comics terms 1988 was not that long ago like comics have been around for a long time but um 1988 we're gonna call early because it's pre-digital coloring as a norm um So you can find these really difficult to parse if you're not familiar with them. And part of that may come from the disconnect between the artist and the colorist and the fact that the colors were intended for a different kind of paper, not the modern glossy paper or digital screens. Although, to be fair, the paper quality in the trades that we read is a little bit closer to the paper comics would have been printed on in the 80s than the usual usual glossy stuff. Like if you compare that, that paper, you you can... feel the the difference oh in, yeah. in what the ink was doing on the page so yeah that's that's why it looks like that um so let's talk a little bit about vertigo
0: vertigo
1: and the history and context of hellblazer and why why it is the way it is um john constantine the character originated in swamp thing number 37 in 1985 that's where he first showed up um that was written by Alan Moore. So Alan Moore is the original creator of John Constantine. Uh, the the spinoff series Hellblazer was headed by Moore's friend Jamie Delano. He was handpicked by Moore. Um, wow, can to do this
0: imagine? Uh,
1: Mr. Moore has handpicked you <laughs> uh, that launched in 1988 under Karen Berger who was an assisted assistant editor at DC who recruited a, a whole bunch of British writers more included known for being a bit darker and edgier than, than was expected of comics at the time so she kind of was handpicking these British writers to mm. join DC in what was called like the British invasion of comics Um, And I'm sure we've talked before about the Comics Code Authority on the
0: podcast. Many times.
1: Uh, And that isn't it is a factor here. It's not the biggest factor, but it is part of it. So if you're not familiar, uh, the Comics Code Authority or CCA was a sort of ratings board similar to the MPAA that we have today. Um, that comics publishers would submit to for a stamp that certified they were acceptable for readers and therefore could be distributed. So they would not distribute your comic, essentially, if you did not have the CCA stamp on it.
0: The and C- Alan Moore is like, I'm not going to get one. <laughs> I'm going to make things so fucked up, I'm not going to get one.
1: <laughs> the CCA prohibited many different kinds of content, including violence, sexuality, horror, and things that are crit- critical of law enforcement, very similar to the Hayes Code in film. Um all of those things were prohibited you could not get the stamp unless you had unless you removed those things from the comics. So by the 80s violence was more acceptable and comics publishers would sometimes choose to not submit titles for approval instead labeling them as for mature audience. And that came along with the introduction of the direct market which means that from publishers to consumers by way of diamond mm-hmm. distributors who is like is the big comics distributor now not so much because COVID. A lot happened over the last two years in comics distribution, <laughs> largely for the better. Um, but anyway, the direct, the addition of the direct market, meaning you did not have to have the stamp. You could go straight from the publisher to the comic shop by way of Diamond. Um, that meant that more publishers were able to just say, "This is for mature audiences." Mm-hmm. And call it a day. You no longer had to have that stamp. Um, so by the, by the time of Hellblazer, by the this time of the late 80s, the CCA did not hold as much power as it did, you know, in the 70s and 60s and so on. Um, DC largely, I they kept submitting, they, they kept putting the CCA stamp on it and getting approval like into the 2000s. Hmm. So it didn't go completely away um, until quite a bit later, but it did not hold as much power as it did Prior to the Mm -hmm. introduction of the direct market. So around this time, you also had intentional pushback on the sort of comics culture that the CCA had created, um, which was superhero heavy and very like, quote unquote, wholesome. You know, like feels like the MCU now. Yeah, like in terms of like good old fashioned American values, you know, like that's the kind of thing that they were promoting with the CCA. So you have this specific wave of, you know, the British invasion, the writers from the UK who are focused on horror and the deconstruction of what comics looked mm-hmm. like and represented on a thematic level coming to prominence in the mid and late eighties, um mm. along like in within DC with these formature titles. Feels
0: like or formature audiences when suddenly James Bond was critical of England. Y- yeah, like there's like there's like an intentional pushback
1: coming through yeah. now that they can.
0: Um, so this or is a, like,
1: uh, didn't that happen
0: in, like, with film noir?
1: Yes, but film noir was still under the Hays Code. Mm. Uh, so this is a quote from DC Vertigo and the Redefinition of Comics by Julia Round, who writes, These core titles were reconceived in the 1980s, not simply as more realistic, like, quote unquote, more realistic Superheroics, but instead as mythological, surreal, religious, and metafictional commentaries upon the comics medium and industry. Rather than continuing the trend for gritty vigilantes and superhero politics, Vertigo's content and style revolved around dark fantasy and sophisticated suspense. Vertigo was conceived as a home for comics, quote, led by the ideas by the writers really wanting to do something different in comic books, unquote, stresses executive editor Karen Berger. Along these lines, she also fought and won a battle not to include the DC Bullet logo on the Vertigo Mm -hmm. covers, a, quote, very, very big deal, unquote. Similarly, many Vertigo titles used an innovative aesthetic. Berger Berger says was, quote, very deliberate. We really just wanted to show how different types of art styles Sorry, we really just wanted to show different types of art styles too, unquote. In an industry often reluctant to take risks, she adds, quote, at the time, it was a big noticeable deal, unquote. So there was this very deliberate and conscious effort on the part of Berger and the Vertigo who would become the Vertigo writers. We're not actually into the creation of Vertigo yet, Mm -hmm. but um, there was a really intentional effort to push at what comics meant in a very real way. The word comics at this time probably summoned up images of brightly colored superhero Mm -hmm. comics like ostensibly for child audiences. And these comics of this era were pushing back on that. Comics could also be dark, they could be adult, and not just in a like not just for kids sense, but in a very real
0: adult sense. Well it makes sense that it worked because those kids who were reading those comics are now adults.
1: Yeah. And like not in the sense that like, oh it's it's also for adults, but in the sense of like
0: It's specifically.
1: Yeah, they're they were dealing with adult material that would not be necessarily interesting to children. Like I started reading some of these comics and I think V for Vendetta was the one I most remember because I really loved the movie. Um, I read V for Vendetta for the first time in high school and I enjoyed it but I didn't really get Get it it in the same way that I do as an adult and that's by design. Like A child or a teenager might read V for Vendetta but they probably won't get it in the same way that an adult will. Unless there's like
0: extensive conversations.
1: Yeah. Um, At DC this wave of writers from the UK were largely recruited by Karen Berger as I said. Like the other DC characters...
0: That's not what I meant.
1: Like the other DC writers, they kind of shared this universe as well as shared themes, which was enough for people to start referring to a, Burgerverse—that's um, burger with an e, by nope, the way. Uh-uh. Um, I refuse <laughs> because she was curating this this line of adult comics at DC, and they kind of interplayed with one another, both in terms of characters and themes. They started calling it the Burgerverse. So this this Burgerverse featured all of these different uh, different writers that she was recruiting. The Burgerverse eventually became Vertigo in 1993, which was an imprint under DC with the explicit goal of helping the industry grow up. So basically this burger was recruit was recruiting all of these writers and she was cultivating such like a like an aesthetic and thematic and like interconnected series of stories um with you know swamp thing crossing over into uh cro- or swamp thing becoming not becoming but swamp thing introducing constantine which became hellblazer hellblazer crossing over with sandman and swamp thing um there, so there was kind of this shared universe thing and that Burgerverse, as it was initially called became vertigo which was its own imprint um so it was like dc adjacent right dc still owned the majority of these properties we'll get into that in, in a bit um but the the vertigo comics were not necessarily in any way connected to the mainstream dc universe like you weren't going to see batman or wonder woman show up in them yet um So this is a quote from The Rewriting Ethos of the Vertigo Imprint, Critical Perspectives on Memory Making and Canon Formation in the American Comics field" by Christopher Doney, who writes, In fact, Vertigo is often praised for having, quote, fully joined the fight for adult readers, unquote, in the early 1990s. So far, however, little attention has been devoted to the implications of how and why this fight was played out by and within the Vertigo imprint. One exception is Julia Round's analysis of some of the editorial and marketing strategies employed by the label in the 1990s. In her essay, Round mentions that Vertigo redefined the comics medium in bringing it, quote, closer to the notion of literary text, unquote, notably in observing that the imprint adopted the concept of the star creator, quote, whose name sells the book, unquote quote the graphic novel format unquote and quote a new self-awareness and literary style unquote and further maintaining that vertigo initiated marketing strategies as well as experimented with industrial practices and techniques round points to the unconscious labels agenda of self-canonization that is it's possibly deliberate efforts to inst a new set of norms within the American comics landscape, and thereby a new canon. I apologize for my stilted reading. <laughs> the text is small. Um, you can't really speak about speak in absolutes about anything regarding comics, right? Like, There's I can't a lot say. going on. I can't just say like, oh, comics readers are like this. That is not There's so many different types. Yeah. So many but i will say many fans were drawn to comics because of a specific character or because of an artist right they would mm. follow artist book to book they would follow character book to book that's but you you might follow an artist for book to book right you might like um i don't know i can't think of anybody but you might artists follow an artist or if you like super if you like superman you might read all the superman titles but you didn't care who was writing them you just cared that you were reading a superman comic yeah. um Vertigo took a different approach by putting the emphasis on the writer. So, prior to this, again, it would have been artists, it would have been characters, mm-hmm. it probably wasn't the writer. And while we can debate about the negative effects this has on comics uh, today, artists and especially colorists and letters often go extremely unappreciated and underpaid. Um, there is no doubt that this attempt to position the writer as the star worked, right? Mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Garth Ennis, Grant Morrison. I would say those are four of the biggest names in comics.
0: I mean, I know them.
1: Yeah, they're inescapable, right? And that was not the norm prior to Vertigo.
0: Um,
1: I think that Vertigo really does feel like a unique part of comics canon. Like It doesn't feel... Like all of the other, there were there were all kinds not of comics. Like other comics. <laughs> there are all kinds of comics going on at this time, right? Like there were there are like this like superhero comics. The way you would think about them, there are more experimental superhero comics. You have like the rise of Image and the weird shit that they were doing. Like there's there's all there's alt comics. Like there's all kinds of comics. It's not just like Vertigo introduced weird comics, but Vertigo as an entity feels distinct from some of the other things happening in comics at the time. And maybe that's just because it was really my introduction to comics. Like that, I, I read comics prior to this, but I didn't find any that I really loved. I read a lot of Archie growing up. Um, I read that really horrible arc of X-Men. Uh, it was utter trash. It Don't worry, it's not your favorite arc. Whoever you are out there listening, like, oh my God, I hope it's not the one I love. It wasn't that one. So I had read that. I had read that. I had read a bunch of Archie growing up. Um, but when I first started like really getting into comics they were almost all vertigo with the exception of hellboy um so vertigo takes up a pretty large presence in my mind when it comes to like comics when i think about comics there's like a big part of it that's vertigo Mm -hmm. um and i think this also really might have shoved comics into the like pow zap comics just aren't for kids aren't just for kids mentality which is really silly of course Um, But I think some broader awareness that comics can be mature and challenging as a medium was like a net good. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, it is annoying that people like outside of comics still don't get that comics are not just for children and they haven't ever been. But, you know, I think that this was kind of a, a kick in the pants for people outside of comics to understand what comic storytelling is capable of. Um, th- so it's hard, I think, to kind of have a unified vision when writers and artists change. But I think that a lot of the legacy of Vertigo is one of Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, as
0: opposed to Alan Moore and writer, letterer, colorist. Like, it, you're not doing any from the cre- from the cr- from the colorists of yeah from the letter of yeah. we present yeah.
1: Um, and you can see this in Hellblazer, right? Delano and Ennis are very, very different writers. Yes. Uh, they work on the same character. And I would say that Constantine is not necessarily a different person when written by each writer. Like, I think that there's fundamental things that there's are the same.
0: Definitely, like, very different. It's a very different vibe. Yeah. And you I'll catch a different vibe. We'll get into that.
1: Um Ennis leans really hard, like the vision of the character is different. I think the understanding of the character is different. Ennis leans very hard into the con man angle of mm-hmm. Constantine, which I really like. I think Ennis is very good at that when he's, um, when he's doing the like very clever triple cross in Dangerous Habits. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Delano emphasized then and now really contemporary politics and almost psychedelic folk magic.
0: I liked the politics a lot.
1: Yeah, those are very different approaches, but both are Hellblazer, right? Mm-hmm. I can't say one is one is Hellblazer and one is not. They're both Hellblazer. I think there is a distinct feel to Vertigo Comics, especially in this early era, that stands out. I think a byproduct is the emphasis on the writer as auteur, but maybe the intent was the publisher as auteur. Um, which is itself a can of worms because comic companies make tons of money off of the contributions and creations of their underpaid teams who are not employees. I must again stress that the majority of these characters were not owned by the people who created them and they go on to make the companies lots and lots of money while the creators make nothing. Unless you're very, very lucky. Um, Most of these comics were company owned with a few being creator owned. The comics we commonly associate with the formation of Vertigo, so Sandman, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing, etc. were in fact among the inaugural titles. Hellblazer was an inaugural inaugural title of the creation of vertigo in 1994 i think it was but they existed prior to the formation of the imprint so in fact Delano, who is my favorite hellblazer writer up until spurrier um he left hellblazer before vertigo formed like Hmm. he was not the original writer of hellblazer as a vertigo comic um the inaugural writer was garth ennis uh so there were like As in, you know, the main DC universe where you have lots of crossover between different characters, different arcs that encompass um, characters from multiple titles. Um, There were occasional crossovers between these titles. So like Constantine appears in Sandman. He also appears in Hell in, of course, he appears in Hellblazer. He appears in Swamp Thing. I'm reading Lucifer right now, which is another Vertigo title. Um, Lucifer itself is a spinoff of Sandman and features like a cameo appearance by Constantine. Um, it's a shared universe but they didn't really have events the way that the main DC universe was a character might appear in more than one series but you rarely needed to pick up issues of another title to understand what was going on with the exception of one major event in the 90s that did not perform well people were not not here for it Um, so that's Vertigo and Art Um, do you have any questions or anything you want to add about that section? I think that
0: was a good good
1: thank you good job thank you now now is the time to talk about Constantine. <laughs>
0: I've headed this part of the outline, Constantine. Yeah. Almost an hour in. Yeah. And we've just not talked about
1: Constantine alone. I thought alone. Th- the vertigo and coloring stuff, because I w- this is what I didn't want to do, was spend an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> going, you know what I love about Constantine? Everything. It's like opposite of O.C. Let me list to you. The number of things that I like, here's every one of them. Page by page, here's what I love. I didn't want to do that. I wanted this to be useful and interesting to people who are not me. I assume that people listening to this podcast are like, oh, I love hearing what Missy and Mary are into, but I also want it to be useful to you. So I, I so. restrained myself
0: from just highlighting everything I loved. Things that got left out. If you want to hear this, I am sure if you emailed us, Missy would create a good list for you. I will,
1: I, like, in all honesty, I will fucking fangirl the fuck out with other Hellblazer, like, other Hellblazer fans of a certain kind.
0: There's. You should, oh, I was gonna say, you should create, like, a, a meetup at the next Comic-Con we go to, but then immediately you said no.
1: There are people out there upset that, about the politics in the new run, uh, and I'm like, who are you? Who are, who are you? Obviously a fake fan. Who are you? Nonsense. Um, my, now here here we come here comes the fake Hellblazer girl stuff. Uh, my introduction to Constantine was absolutely the fucking 2005 movie with Keona Reeves. I still have my fucking movie ticket <laughs> from
0: seeing Constantine. It has notes on it. It is for- on the ticket. Yes. This movie was formative to us. Um, And I have no shame about the fact that
1: this was my introduction to the comics. It made me want to read them, right? Like, I saw this and I was like, oh, I want more of this. Whatever this is, I want more. Um, But I actually didn't end up reading Hellblazer until I was in my 20s. So probably four or five years after I
0: saw the movie. Um, Listen, Nisney and I used to rewatch this movie... Like every other weekend, I uh, yeah I have this movie basically memorized. <laughs> we there were like four movies that we would just rewatch on like a regular basis. Yes, yeah. and this was definitely one of them.
1: Yeah, I've seen this movie. And so I have many times. T- I have to say, it wasn't because I thought Keanu Reeves was super hot. I did not think he's hot. I think
0: he. I didn't think anyone was hot when I was a teenager. Though
1: in some circumstances, he is a total babe, and often in this movie, when he rolls up his sleeves, most men are. Yeah. I no science can't explain but it's true anyway I did not love the movie because I thought he was super hot there was something in it that I was like oh what's happening here I don't understand it but I really like it um so I like I went out and started reading the comics checked them out from my library when I was in my 20s um and I really struggled reading the first volume like I it wasn't like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. I was like, oh, this is kind of hard to read, <laughs> um, but I loved it. I loved the experience of reading it and not entirely knowing what was going on. I was really struggling, Such but a I was, weird kid, but I was really enjoying it. I loved being confused. I, well, sometimes it's good for you. Uh, I had read some other comics before this. Again, V for Vendetta and Hellboy are the two I remember most. Um, but this was the first one to really grab me and make me want to read more. I, like I said, I love the movie, but when I read the comic, I was like, I can't, I can't explain what's happening here, but I am in love with this. Um, and that brings us to my first attempt to read an ongoing series, Justice League Dark. I fucking hated it. I fucking hated it. I hated it so much. Uh, I think by this point I had read a few volumes of Hellblazer that would have been primarily, if not entirely, by Jamie Delano, Delano, uh, whose writing of Constantine I loved very much for reasons I did not think about at the time. Like I simply, I, I was not in the critical mode. You know, I was not like, why do I love this? What interests me? about? I was just, I wasn't thinking like that. I was just like, I'm having a great time. You're
0: like, I'm 20. I'm just trying to survive I'm just college living. and school. Yeah.
1: Um, Justice League Dark, which launched in 2011 with Peter Milligan and Mikkel Jan Janin, I think is how the name is said, as part of the infamous New 52 line.
0: Uh, infamous
1: new yeah, that put Constantine as part of a Dark Justice League team up that also featured Zatanna, Madam Xanadu, Deadman, Shade the Changing Man, and a bunch of other people who were really unfamiliar I didn't know who any of those fucking people were I knew none of them were
0: Um, you mean Zatanna?
1: no I didn't know who Zatanna was either she's cool She's cool. by this point I had read some other comics I was probably knee deep in Sandman in 2011 uh, 2011, 2011-2012 and I had a better sense of what I liked and disliked and friends this is what I fucking disliked (laughs) I picked up Justice League Dark and I probably read three or four issues of it and I was angry the whole time what was it about it? I'll get into that. There's, there's a point to this digression. At the time, I couldn't explain what it was that I disliked, other than that something about it felt wrong to me in terms of what I expected from a story about John Constantine. Something about that series just felt wrong to me for a story that included John Constantine. And now I think there's one very, theor- one, one very clear thing that we can talk about as to why this didn't work for me, and that is Constantine as a hero versus Constantine as a superhero, Mm. Two different things. At first glance, it makes sense to read Constantine as a superhero, right? Like when you just look at the things on paper, he's a comic character with literal magic powers, yeah. right? Literally. But when I first read Constantine as part of the DC Universe, specifically in Justice League Dark, I was so put off by how he was used in the story that I literally did not pick up any other ongoing comics for two years because I assumed that they were all bad. That's crazy. I did not start reading comics like ongoing comics regularly until 2014. I was finally ready to try again after (laughs) after the frustration of reading Justice League Dark. Um, It was judgy of me, but it's true. That's what
0: happened. Um, I'm glad you can accept it and, and, and let people know. I've let it go. Some, sometimes comics are bad. Uh, I wasn't reading a lot of comics at the
1: time, but it's become clear over the years that while I do enjoy comics, superhero comics, aren't really my thing. Um, there are some exceptions. I really love unbeatable squirrel girl, for example. Um, but I think what felt off about this series to me was that John Constantine in a superhero story did not work with what I liked about the character. Um, but if he's a hero, he's an anti-hero. We can talk a little more about the anti-hero definition later. Um, but if he's a hero with magical powers, what is it that makes him not a superhero? Like if I just said, oh, a hero with magical powers, you're like, oh, yeah, superhero. Duh. Duh. Um, this is a quote from the definition of the superhero by Peter Coogan. Um, well actually first I'm just going to summarize something. So Coogan in, in defining what a superhero is, he comes up with a concept called MPI and he uses that as a set of classifications to define what a superhero is. And MPI stands
0: for magical person (laughs) imprint. That's pretty good, Mary. I know, right? Just immediately off the dome. Yeah. So that must be what it is. Uh, it stands for mission
1: powers and identity. I like mine better. Um, these are flexible ideas, as Coogan explains, because many clear, like many characters who are clearly superheroes, do not always really feature the characteristics. Like technically, Batman has no superpowers, but we'd absolutely call him a superhero, right? Uh, the Hulk has no clear mission, but he's still a superhero. Uh, the Fantastic Four don't have, I mean, they have secret identities, but also people know who they are, so like. There there are clear superheroes that do not fit the clear definition as Coogan defines it of what a superhero is. Now this is a quote from his essay and it is a long one. Bear with me. Um, other definitions of uh, definitions of the superhero overlook the idea of gen- generic or generic. I don't know. Coming generic? from a genre, it's it
0: looks like oh, generic, it's generic, but it's, it's different than genre. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Anyway, many other definitions of the superhero overlook the idea of, I'm going to say generic, but I mean genre, uh, generic distinction. That is the conk. Con- God, there's a lot of words I can't I'm pronounce it here.
0: Concatenation? that sounds like a made up word of
1: other conventions that henderson calls family resemblance generic distinction can be used to divide superheroes from non-superheroes basically if a character fits the mpi conventions even with some significant qualifications and cannot be easily placed into another genre the character is a superhero on the reverse side if a character largely fits the mpi qualifications of the definition but can be firmly and sensibly placed within another genre then the character is not a superhero typically the the identity convention, code name, and costume plays the greatest role of the three elements in helping to rule characters in or out. Luke Cage serves as an excellent example of the importance of generic distinction by in defining a character as a superhero and placing him within the genre. Luke Cage clearly has superpowers. He is invulnerable and super strong, but such a character could operate a detective/slash security agency within a science fiction or horror/slash sci-fi milieu and not be considered a superhero. The editors and writers at Marvel Comics took great care to place Luke Cage within the superhero genre by surrounding the character with superhero conventions and foregrounding these conventions. These conventions mark Luke Cage as a superhero and not as a detective or adventure hero who has superpowers. The cover
0: the cover of the first issue proclaims it a sensational origin issue. So, like, when you take that and you compare it to the Netflix shows, it's like the opposite then, right? Of that.
1: It depends, right? Because... I think that the Netflix shows like Daredevil, I have not watched Daredevil, but Daredevil and uh, Jessica Jones is the one that I actually have watched. Um, They're definitely operating in a genre sense, but we know that they're part of the Marvel universe as well. Uh, That's one of the things that I like about those kinds of stories is that they're telling us something beyond the superheroics. And that is why those kinds of stories appeal to me. Mm Um, but what Coogan is arguing here is that it's not only the existence of MPI characteristics that define a superhero, but also the genre that they reside in. So a superhero could technically exist in another kind of story, a la Jessica Jones, the TV show, um, and presumably the comic, I haven't read that arc of Jessica Jones, um, So a a superhero could technically exist in another kind of story, but the elements that surround a character, not merely the presence of a superhero are what makes a superhero Hmm. story.
0: Interesting.
1: So while Constantine could be argued to have a mission, right? He has powers and he arguably has a superhero identity. Like you can call him the laughing magician, right? You can, and he has an outfit he wears all the time. That's recognizable. Um, Most of those stories are not written as superhero stories, right? I would not identify hunger as a superhero story. There's like very little about it that would say superhero. Um, They are typically stories about a singular event in the terms of Hellblazer. They're typically about a single event or an event localized to one specific area. And Constantine typically does not solve the problem through his powers. If he can be said to solve the problem at all. Um, (laughs) He does very little magic over the course of the issues that we read. Um, he might scry or he might summon a demon or he might, you know, take a little jaunt into hell. Um, but magic is rarely the solution to whatever the problem is. The problem is never solved by essentially superheroics. It is solved by cleverness. It's solved by trickery um, or it's not solved at all. So when it came to Justice League Dark which was part of the main DC universe. So Vertigo existed all the way up until 2020. Um, but Constantine at that point being owned by DC with Vertigo, you know, Vertigo was the imprint, but still owned by DC. So DC technically owned Constantine. Constantine was folded into the main DC universe with superheroes um, so that comic, Justice League Dark, felt like a superhero story to me. It did not feel like a Hellblazer story. To really be of any use in this world of superheroic problems, Constantine needed to behave like a superhero, right? He needed to use magic more often, specifically really visible magic, right? It shows up on the page in a way that you don't see it in these early uh in these early Hellblazer comics like yes you might see him drawing some symbols or like waving his hand around so or wearing it. a fancy outfit or whatever but you don't see like glowing circles with symbols in the air there's you don't like, see
0: lightning bolts right there's more of them. there's more references to it than yes. actually it happening like I can I can only there's a lot more that happens in the newer one yes. but oh my gosh I oh got I was like I don't can't tell you when he's done magic yeah it's, but when he's in the superhero setting
1: in the same way that you might see like storm throwing a lightning bolt at somebody they want a visual representation of the magic he's doing that looks like other superpowers um so i wouldn't describe Constantine as a superhero, but he does sometimes appear in superhero comics and those comics to me are not all that interesting. They do not do for me what Hellblazer does. Missy does not like
0: superhero comics.
1: I there are some that I like, but overwhelmingly it's just not a genre that I'm invested in. It's probably in. something else that you like within the superhero. Exactly, like when it, like I really liked Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, yeah, which exactly is exactly
0: what I was thinking. Which is
1: absolutely a superhero comic, but it's not it's it's being very deliberate about what it's doing. It's telling a lot smaller stories, um, and it's 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 playing with the concept of superhero comics in a very different way, um, and that's what I like about it. Um, now I understand. Again, those of you who have listened to this this podcast a lot and are like, "Hey, hey, now I know how much you love Legends of Tomorrow." <laughs>
0: that's um, very different, though.
1: I will talk about it in our next episode when we talk about the Constantine show. I accept that Legends of Tomorrow is a superhero show and I will explain why
0: I like its portrayal of Constantine anyway. But that's that's exactly what I'm saying like there's other reasons why mm-hmm. you like that. It's not be it could be probably a lot of different people in that same situation and you'd still love it cuz they just fucking go for it. Absolutely. I think I'm going to cuz
1: I I will rewatch Things like right now I'm rewatching the good place while I work, but I think I'm going to rewatch season four of legends of tomorrow, um, which is the very Constantine heavy one so mm-hmm. that I can make sure that I am actually remembering it accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are reasons that that works for me, whereas something like Justice League Dark or even the Constantine TV show don't work for me, but we'll say that for the next episode. Um, So this is another quote from the definition of the superhero by Peter Coogan. A useful analogy is that hero is to superhero as model is to supermodel. A superhero is a hero who is super or superior to other kinds of heroes, typically by virtue of physical abilities, just as a supermodel is superior to other types of models, typically by virtue of superior attractiveness and charisma. The distinction between superhero with a space and superhero is analogous to the distinction between everyday with space, i.e. every single day and every day, no space, i.e. ordinary. One might wear Mm. everyday clothing every day. So the two terms are related, but they have distinct meanings. Interesting. So while we can certainly define Constantine as a hero, more specifically as an anti-hero, because he is not exactly likable and he often does things for reasons that are not heroic, but for the right reasons, or he does things for the wrong reason and ends up succeeding. um, So he is... He we could describe him as a hero, but not a superhero. Um part of his appeal has always been that he is a working class guy. He's a former punk musician, and while he's certainly clever and witty, his access to magic is only because he studied it, right? He doesn't have he's well, it gets complicated when you get <sighs> later into the story. But in theory, anybody could study and be like John Constantine. Why you would want to do that is a mystery for the ages. Please do not try to become John Constantine. He sucks and he has a bad time.
0: But he's got a
1: lot of heart. But he's got a lot of heart. Um, Constantine, by Coogan's definition here, is a sort of everyday, no space hero he's an everyday hero right he himself is not all that special but what he does is
0: i would say that's his definition of himself but i don't think that's my definition of him (laughs) um he is not all that special but
1: what he does is if he would stop thinking of himself as special in his case specifically cursed um he would probably have a better life if he would and this is like talked about in the um in the comic as well there's a part when kit who is the best character. I love her so much. I would lay down my life for Kit. Um, she makes fun of him. She's like grabbing her. F- I wish I could remember where it is. I could probably, I know I saved the panel somewhere, but she grabs her face and like makes this agonizing face. And she's like, Oh, I'm John Constantine. Everybody hates me. And I walk my path alone. Um, that's the kind of thing. Like he has created that for himself. And if he would let go of it, he would probably have a better time. Um, Coogan argues that Constantine and similar heroes occupy a sort of liminal genre status. They might cross over with superheroes from time to time, but they are tied more firmly to other genres. In Constantine's case, horror. Like These are horror comics, uh, and they are sometimes detective stories as opposed to being superhero comics. And I think this difference in genre comes through most clearly in the resolution of these stories, right? They almost never end with evil vanquished, which is what we expect from a typical superhero story. Not all superhero stories, but when you're seeing a superhero story, you kind of have the expectation that evil will be, will be vanquished. Um, They don't particularly give us hope, right? We'll come back to that in a bit.
0: I, I feel like his, absolute how much he cares gives me a little hope it yes I'll, we'll come back to the idea of hope
1: um even when Constantine defeats whatever evil he is fighting such as crashing the soul market or <laughs> tricking the man in the flat cap or saving his soul from hell <laughs> it's always a it's it's a one step forward two steps back situation right the soul market is crashed but Thatcher still won the election, right? The man in the flat cap is vanquished, but now Constantine is dead or something. We'll never know, because this series got fucking canceled. Constantine saves his own soul from hell, but not forever, and he almost sent the universe into a war for it.
0: He'd do anything. Or his friends are dead. Can I just tell you? Or something when else. When the guy that the had cancer died, I was devastated. Chaz? No, the, the, is that the, oh, the old guy? The old guy. Yeah, that was really sad. That's when I was like tearing up. I was so upset. Yeah.
1: And Chaz dies of lung cancer in Sandman Presents Hellblazer number one mm. because Constantine has smoked around That's him his right. entire life.
0: Um, he has, hasn't he? He has.
1: Uh, in some senses, this idea of like one step forward, two steps back is. You know, it's a it's a way of creating a serial narrative like we talked about in the Vampire Diaries episode. A serial narrative will end an episode or in this case an issue with a hook. Right. How is he going to get out of this one, which is resolved? And then a new problem is introduced to keep you interested. So you keep reading issue to issue so that you're like, oh, okay, well, he defeated. You know, he crashed the soul market. But Margaret Thatcher is still prime minister. So what's going to happen next?
0: Now there's sirens. And the devil. (laughs) Um, But I've been sweet.
1: Yeah. Um, but I think, especially in the more political issues of the early series and also the new run, it's also a statement because the work of undoing evil in the world isn't something that you do one time, right? It's something that must be done again and again and again with very little hope of stopping it forever. But I wouldn't describe these comics as hopeless, right? They don't feel hopeless to me. And again, I definitely wasn't thinking of this when I first started reading the series. Like I wasn't like, wow, it's really interesting, the political statement these these <laughs> comics are making both... You know, in the long term and in the short term, and to in the direct and the fair. indirect. I feel like you might have thought that. I don't think <laughs> I was. I, I don't know why I liked them. I could tell something was resonating with me, but I, I didn't know what it was. Um, but the fact that this series, Hellblazer, including, you know, the spin-off series and all that kind of stuff, the fact that this is about a man who keeps fighting against all of this horrible shit, demons and monsters, of course, but also bigotry, racism, exploitation, um, despite the odds against him is what I actually love about the series. He knows that he is never going to win. And he copes with that by being a snarky little shithead. Like that, that is like the fact that he won't give up and he will just continue to be a shithead about it really appeals to me in a character. Um, So that, that leads to the question of how does it avoid feeling hopeless or depressing? For the most part, some of the individual stories are, in fact, quite depressing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's puns. And I would agree with you. There's other things, too, but I think that's part of it. Mostly puns. How can you have a story about an unwinnable fight featuring a self-hating character riddled with guilt whose friends keep dying that does not make you want to curl up in a ball and never read again? Um, And I think that one, the one step forward approach is crucial. None of the stories that we read, at least, uh, ended without a step forward or some kind of victory over whatever it was that Constantine was up against, even if it was only partial. There is always a win, right? There is a win. It may not be the win you were looking for. It may have come with great losses, but there's always a win. Um, Or there's a level of catharsis, right? Like you said, you didn't You did not finish the pig, the story with the pigs, which is uh, man's work and I could not boys play, which
0: is fair. It's a really dark story. It was was too, it was too much for me.
1: It's really dark. It's really gross. Also, like it's really disgusting. It's It's probably one of the more disgusting ones to me.
0: It was just the content was just too much for me to handle. (laughs) at this time in my life, it is
1: quite brutal. And but I think and like there's a win in that the villain who is just a guy just a guy he's just a just a bad guy like he's not like a demon or anything at least not that i remember mm. he's just an asshole um <laughs>
0: just an asshole. he
1: is defeated in the end oh yeah um and that's catharsis and it's a win but like it's not like evil's over forever it's definitely that one step forward yeah but you still get the just catharsis like- of being like that guy got fucking eaten and I'm here for By it. By a sexy pig. By a
0: sexy pig. And that sounds like a story I should be able to to finish, <laughs> but it was not. It um, was a tell you. It was a gnarly story. And I tried. Th- there was a lot of uh,
1: adult on teen violence yeah. and adult on animal violence, which is well, not an
0: animal on animal. And
1: animal on animal violence. Yeah, there was a lot of. Uh, it was gross and oops, it was it was bad. upsetting. It was
0: hard. Um, it wasn't bad. It was hard. It was just too too much. Yeah, for me. it's the only one I didn't finish. Um. And that's how dark it was.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's always a win of some kind or some level of catharsis, uh, even if it's only partial. Um, and that, that's what carries you through from story to story, even if there are numerous setbacks. Like there's always the sense of catharsis or this partial win. And I think the reason that this works is that it's truthful right? Mm-hmm. There's a truth to this kind of storytelling, even if the stories are not realistic,
0: which is why the politics work.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, very few social changes because that's what the stories I really love in Hellblazer are like they're, they're stories about social change and about mm-hmm. fighting back against, um, exploitation and that kind of thing. Um, very few actual real social changes are accomplished in one fell swoop, right? Like we can't just say, all right, racism is over.
0: Would love to. We did it
1: folks. It's over. Would love to. Um, that and like this agrees with my personal view of the world, which is that w- we shoot for the moon and accept that change will often occur in inches rather than miles. Rather than shooting for incremental change and accepting that nothing will happen, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, this is a fundamental political difference in a lot of people. Some people are like, "Well, change happens slowly, therefore we should try to change slowly." And I'm like, "Let's let's aim a little bigger." And- Who defines what's slow? <laughs> yeah, um, not fixing everything at once does not mean that you get to quit, right? Just because you may want to. You may want to, but you don't get to. Constantine as a character also has a strong sense of humor, which builds levity and irony and disgust into some of the more intense scenes, like mm-hmm. the one we just talked about with man's work and boys' play or boys' games or whatever it is. It's, it's an upsetting story in many ways, but it is really fucking funny that he is undone by a sexy pig. Like, that is, that is funny to me. It's so dark, but it's so funny also. This could easily be a very, very serious comic, right? Like, it could be really serious. And at times it is very serious, but it's broken up by jokes, including very bitter ones. But, you know, like, that is part of it. But there's also just, like, the humor itself is, is I think, core to what makes these comics not super depressing. Like, the new series in particular, I think, has for for modern audiences has an even greater potential to be potential to be depressing because it's literally about things that we're struggling with now like it's it's explicitly about brexit it's explicitly about um the defunding of the national the what is it called why did i just forget what it's called the national health service um in england there it's about you know ordinary homegrown bigotry and nationalism um it's about things that are clear and present and it's easy for that to feel depressing but then you have jokes like Tommy Willowtree there I love Tommy Willowtree Mr. To, Willowtree to serve a moss latte to John Constantine so good you have a fu- you have a vial of unicorn semen like <laughs> the, like these things are funny as well as they are like representative of actual dark things that go on in the real world. Um, And I think it's important to, to note that while supernatural threats are absolutely a part of the Hellblazer world, right. In almost every circumstance, the actual true evil resides in humans. That is, yes, there are demons. Yes, there is Tulpa. There are Tulpas. Yes. There's in other stories, the ley lines are fucked up and people are making a fear machine and there's big egg. Um, like yes that is all happening but the evil resides in humans and the final arc of the most recent hellblazer is a perfect example of this right humans do all kinds of evil things throughout the new series um and they are often entangled in magical things that they don't understand right like they don't you know the um the uh the i don't remember what his actual position is the duke or whatever with the unicorn semen Mm -hmm. he doesn't understand that he is being manipulated by magical forces but it doesn't fucking matter because the real evil is him Mm -hmm. they are exploiting his evil actions to further their own actions the real evil are the humans you met along the way yes um yeah he was fucked he's fucked up uh but even when it seems like the world is governed by demons like which is in that the late arc with Clem Thurso, the politician who you've kind of seen in the background, like he's the one in the mermaid issue who's spouting all of the bullshit on the Mm -hmm. TV about the French. Um, When it seems like the world is governed by demons in actuality, Clem Thurso was evil, racist and bigoted before he was possessed by a demon, right? (laughs) That was there before the demon, all of that existed in him and was exploited by the demon to gain power. And when it comes to the conclusion, the demon is disgusted by what I they know. are doing. That was, that was really good. The de- like the demon is like, hey, y'all are fucked up beyond something I can even handle. Um, in essence... It was fucked up. It was fucked up. In essence, humans are the most evil things in the story, right? But, and I think this is really important to acknowledge too, this isn't a story about the innate evil of humanity. It's not saying, you know, all humans are innately evil. It's saying that there are forces like fear and pride and money that push us in that direction. If the story were about the innate evil of humanity, we wouldn't have characters like Noah or Nat or even Tommy Willowtree, who is my enemy. But, you know, he's apparently not a bad guy. Um,
0: I like him. He grates
1: on me so... He's so stupid. He grates on me so much, but in a good way. Like, I would love to hate that shithead.
0: He's one of those people that I feel like... Um, He's really genuine in his bullshit. He believes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't trust him. I didn't at first, but by the end of it, I did. I, yeah, I was like, well, I guess he's good. Fucking fine. Um, and he gets with what's her name? Yeah. And I love that.
1: Even like, even Constantine for that matter, right? He would not be the character he is if these comics believe that humans are innately evil. Because why would he be fighting for it? Right they are essentially playing whack-a-mole, right, with the repercussions of fear and pride being corrupting influences, but they don't stop because the fight is still worth it, right? The fight is always worth the effort that you put into it, even if all of this heartbreak and setbacks occur as well. And, like, also these comics are just really fun to pick apart because the people writing them are, um, in many cases, actual, like, magic practitioners love it and that is fun so this is a quote from folklore in the comic book uh the traditional meets the popular by elizabeth wine and i can read this font um while cross-cultural comparisons and the study of archetypes have been argued against and discarded as unworkable in academic circles works on these subjects like that of jg fraser andrew lang and robert graves as well as the subsequent work of young are still very popular with comic book writers and their audiences audience rather well
0: young never not be popular no
1: uh neil gaiman the creator of sandman tells of rejecting a book on mythic archetypes not because of any intellectual disbelief but because quote there's a level on which you shouldn't be trying to do this stuff too consciously there's a level on which you should know how it feels on which you go by gut feeling and you know that you've succeeded when the story feels inevitable unquote the idea is not to consciously follow or obey a set pattern george lucas uh (laughs) If it's done correctly, in Gaiman's view, it will fall into that pattern. This argues not for a conscious use of academically, quote unquote, identified archetypes, but in keeping with Jung, the development of characterizations that fit our past and unconscious definition of archetypes. Such understanding of archetypes is clearly at work in these serials, particularly in the work of Jamie Delano, Delano in hellblazer as the character john constantine explains to a group of fellow magicians well the way i see it the god that we're dealing with is an archetype of human consciousness it's a response to an emotional stimulus a race memory of a time when our brains work differently a time when gods were real because we lived more in the creative right side of our brains than in the quote-unquote rational of the rational universe of the left this is a far cry from the pow zap mentality with which comic book readers and writers have usually been cr- been credited so Again, if you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you know, I get really annoyed when criticism praises media for making reference to things like Jung's theory of the collective unconscious or whatever, because it isn't hard to make a reference. Like, it's just like making reference to something seen as academic or philosophical is not inherently smart. Like, ah, yeah, I do study English whoopee for us you know um i want to see people do something with references or all you're doing is making empty gestures to inflate my ego like family guy you're just philosophical
0: family guy yeah
1: like like it's not to say that that is inherently bad but
0: it's not inherently good either it just it's it's like you come you came to the stoplight but it stayed red. But you got there. Yeah. But you didn't go past it. I, I want things
1: that go a little bit further than that. And I think many of these, in many of these comics, Hellblazer included, they are playing with these concepts in a way that is both acknowledging that Young was an influential figure and asking us to do something with these ideals. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Young before, so I don't want to go super deep into it. Um, but the the like kind of surface level just like here's what we're talking about is that carl Jung proposed archetypes that appear in stories throughout the world throughout history figures like the trickster the devil the mother etc and Jung believed that these archetypes sprang from a collective unconscious shared by humanity that on some level all of our thinking is influenced by collective source of knowledge that is akin to and in fact inspired by plato's world of forms so like essentially there is a truth somewhere out there that we access through our shared unconscious um That's all very interesting. Right. And it's kind of fun when it shows up like you have like a reference to that kind of thing. But people tend to treat these archetypes much like TV tropes, which are themselves archetypal. Um, They are not the source of meaning. Right. Like I can say, oh, John Constantine is a trickster figure. And that is true but that itself is not the source of meaning it is a reference so spotting them is very fun like you know playing a scavenger hunt but it is not actually productive right it it can give us a sense of satisfaction but it's not necessarily challenging us in any way or making us think we should ask what a reference is doing or what an archetype is doing and not just what it is um and we'll talk about sandman someday probably when the show comes out i would i would really love to do a sandman episode um But I'm using Sandman here because it is explicitly a story about belief and about stories and how the two are intertwined, exclusive of truth. Like, it's not about, okay, what's true, what's not. It's about all of these things are kind of true. In Hellblazer, as Wine points out, Constantine literally addresses the collective unconscious by suggesting that gods used to be real and literal because we lived in a less rational time. And this is the foundation of Nietzsche's idea that God is dead like that that part of philosophy which is not saying hooray God is dead and we killed him it's saying oh shit God is dead because we no longer have easily easy explanations for things right so like when when Nietzsche is saying that he's not saying like God is dead and now mankind is free, he's saying it used to be that when we didn't know something or we didn't understand our purpose, we could say, oh, God put me here to do this or God put this here to do this. Now that we have rationalism, now that we have scientific knowledge, now that we have the capacity to learn more about these things, we've become unmoored, right? We no longer can say, God put me here to do this. We have to figure it out ourselves. And that's very scary.
0: So is that the same kind of like line of thinking when I think it's in the unicorn one, when the girl has the the horns and she says something like, of course it's not magic, but like magic b- exists when people believe and or something like that. And so people believe that they're unicorn horns or something.
1: Um, sort of in some cases. Yeah. Like, so I don't want to get too deep into Sandman because like Sandman is very and, and American gods for that matter. This is clearly a, an interest of Neil Gaiman's. Um, it's very interested in the idea that belief creates power. So like in American gods, you have um, all of these gods from cultures around the world who have lost power over time because belief in them has ebbed. And instead you have the rise of, and this is a mild spoiler for um, for American gods, um, you have the rise of media as a god because so many people believe in media as opposed to like, say, um, fucking
0: yep, Loki. My favorite. Oh. <laughs>
1: like, fucking, the god of fucking. um
0: Loki. Well, okay.
1: <laughs> Um, so like that is explicitly about the idea that belief lends power, but there's also like in, like when I'm talking about Hellblazer and this idea of God is dead, when you, when you no longer have God to fall back on, when you can no longer say God did this, God made this happen, God ordained this, you then have to say, okay, why did it happen then? If I can't say God did it, why, why did it happen? You know, why does evil exist? Why do these things happen? It creates a a sense of, um, now I could be, I might be getting philosophies mixed up here. I'm sorry. I'm not a philosopher. Um, but that kind of leads to the idea of like existential panic, right? Like, why am I here? What is yeah, my purpose? Like, do have does that. anything matter? No. And then you can, you can, once you reach that point, then you can go down several different paths into yeah. understanding your place in the world.
0: But that or, well, you just don't, you're like, I'm just not I'm going to put that in a box and put it away. And well, not you think need to, about you it. need to read more philosophy, Mary.
1: So when you have that idea, you know, God is dead and you have to then replace it with something else um, that to me, you know, we don't have explanations for things and like we, we can no longer say God did it. And that is a, a deeply scary place to inhabit. And that kind of is Hellblazer to me. Right. It is easy to blame the supernatural for being the source of evil. Uh, sometimes in, in the world of Hellblazer, it literally is. But it is not the complete picture, right? Thurso was evil before the demon got him. That is why the demon got him, in fact, mm-hmm. is because he was already like that. The soldiers died in war before they were brought back, right? In that arc of, is it like Johnny coming home or something like that? I don't remember. It's the Vietnam so, War. That sounds right. In original one, sense. Yeah. Um, the soul market crashed, right? But Thatcher remains prime minister. God might be dead. But we're still left with all of the problems, right? And that, that to me is Hellblazer. The idea that, like, okay, well, the supernatural didn't really do it, did it? Now we have to deal with the consequences of everything that's left. Like, we can no longer say, oh, well, Clem Thurso was evil because a demon got him. No. He was just, he, he was just a bad dude. He was just prime real estate
0: for that, yeah. For that
1: demon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that is one of the many things that is interesting to me about Hubblazer is that idea that, like, okay, we have to clean up the mess that we actually created because none of the evil stuff would have power if we didn't give it to it, just like the fish, just like the fish. um so let's talk a little bit more about john constantine specifically the character less so the the series um i think something we'll be talking about in the next episode which will be on the show in the movie is whether they are successful adaptations for a variety of reasons but one of those reasons is the character of constantine himself um constantine is as we've established a hero who might work in a superhero setting like it's not inconceivable again the legends of tomorrow fan has logged on um <laughs> but he is not himself a superhero i think we can agree on that yeah i would agree with that um he's an anti-hero he's self-interested he doesn't always act ethically and he's just like so 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 fucking flawed like so flawed but he's, he cares but he cares he's not a man i would want to be friends not with. yet a woman he's not a man not yet a woman and i don't want to be his friend because
0: i don't want to die i mean i don't really want to be his friend but i will still have sympathy and be like pat his hand and be like it's okay it's okay buddy <laughs> it's okay buddy <laughs> um some self-care here's some spa tickets yeah
1: still he generally fights on the side of good in that he opposes exploitation and oppression and all of its forms he wants people to have autonomy etc hence the reason that he is a
0: hero Um, he's like he would fight some he would do a job to get money but if that job ended up being extremely immoral he'd have no issue being like peace money yeah um in some circumstances sometimes he's just a shithead
1: Which is why he's an intriguing character to me. If he was good all the time, then I would be bored. Um, I feel like those things, the idea that that he opposes exploitation and oppression and that he's not a pure hero, like he's not always fighting for the ethically good and he doesn't always use ethical methods, Mm -hmm. are necessary to something being an effective Constantine story to me. Mm -hmm. If he always does the right thing and he does it right and he wins in the end and there's a happy ending, then I'm like why the fuck did you even bother putting Constantine in it? Like he, That's not
0: what I'm here for. If he's not solving the Crow issue with that, with, by not teaching them how to swear then it, is it really Constantine?
1: Yeah, like I don't want a clear perfect ending to a Constantine story. It doesn't work for me. Um, another key element for me is abolishing any form whatsoever of subtlety. Um, <laughs> I wrote about this in my review of number eight of the new series um, which is the second part of the mermaid story and I can link that review in the show notes. I'm very proud of all of my reviews of this of the new series Um, and so I think you should read all of them. I worked really hard on them and I'm very proud of them.
0: Um, But... The mermaid story is so good.
1: Yeah. I I just fucking love when he goes off in that arc about the real... about real magic being a salmon run. I fucking
0: love it. It was just like pure.
1: Okay. So in this this issue he is explaining to a mermaid as one does. um, He's kind of chiding her in a way and also just expressing disgust with her situation not because of her but because she's been horribly manipulated by a man who claims to be in love with her and this is so this is <laughs> this is something that he says uh he, i have to make noises because of the way this is written he goes fucking love fucking magic here, you wanna know what's really magic? Like none of that wanky alter thy perceptions and remake thy world shit. I mean actual ineffable wonderment. You ever heard of the salmon run? That's where a few million fish innocently bumming about in the briny depths suddenly decide to travel three thousand miles or thereabouts to return from whence they came. And fat with eggs and spunk and changing too, colors, shapes, like there's something in them, you know, busy busy transmuting lead to gold. Well they find their way back, don't they? Like exactly back. Right river, right spot, place they were born. You know how? course of course you don't nobody does magic see
0: i love that i i love that and i just thought that was such a good way to like the way his magic works the and way he interacts with magic it just like
1: made sense yeah it, it so it continues on and oh fuck me the shit they go through on the way bears and eagles and worse and when they get stuck honestly it's like david At- attenborough's wet dream you know what they do they swim up waterfalls. Oh, call it nature. Call it the primal imperative. Call it a semelperis strategy. It's still fucking magic. It's thumbing your nose at logic. It's jumping off a cliff with nothing but the hope of flight. It's like love in that respect. Um, sorry, somebody's... There's there's also events going on on the page at <laughs> this time. It's what brought you back to him, isn't it? This would be, what, few weeks back, right bloody here. Magic, love, same difference. And it's like I said, there's always a price. Um, so I just... Fucking love this going off about love and a salmon run being magic because they're things that happen that can't be explained um they exist like outside of the rational mind. Um, what I have loved about this series since I first read it is that it does not shy away from representing real things, not through subtext but through reality, right? Margaret Thatcher is real; she died uh <laughs> bigotry is real. HIV is real, gentrification is real, the Vietnam war was real and so on, right? This series kind of grabs your face, points it towards reality and will not let you look away, mm-hmm. even though it is a fantasy horror story, right? It's not real, but it is real. Um, I also think that Constantine's internal guilt and self-hatred are absolutely crucial to creating a believable Constantine for me. Um, if he's just a smarmy bastard He's not Constantine to me. I'm not here for him just being clever. I want that cleverness to be like a shield for his deep... Like go to therapy, man. Like, you gotta. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta. I want to see
0: Hellblazer. I the, bet
1: the therapy session. Somewhere out there, there has to be an arc where he goes to therapy. Um, Imagine being that therapist. They're dead now. You'd quit. Absolutely, they're oh, dead. Oh, absolutely. Um. Even if the reasons for his guilt and his self-hatred differ from arc to arc, I think it needs to be present or he feels like every other snarky con man rather than like John Constantine to me. Um, Ennis actually has a very different interpretation of John Constantine, Mm -hmm. which I think is why his, his version of the character, I enjoy it, but it doesn't work for me in the same way that Delano's. Yeah, Delano's does. Um, So this is a quote from the Secret History and Uncertain Future of comics character John Constantine, which is by Abraham Reisman, who writes, Ennis, in fact, is the only one of Constantine's writers to openly repudiate the character. But it's not because he feels squeamish about what he wrote. It's because he's come to find John morally loathsome. So this is a quote from Ennis. I've known a few too many lovable rogue slash wide boy types in real life to find the notion attractive. People who abuse their friends disappear for a while, then come back and do it again because they know they'll be forgiven. I've no desire to write a character who who essentially gets his pals killed and then explains that they were doomed anyway. So why not just spend why not just spend their lives and use them up, which is fair, right? I think that is fair. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that character interpretation to me Constantine is so full of self-hate that he genuinely believes it is for the best that he leaves and he covers it up with sarcasm and humor like I think that that motherfucker is lying 90% of what comes out of his mouth like I do not believe like it is telling to me And I mean Garth Ennis wrote this arc it is telling to me that like one of the only times he expresses genuine love to a character it's Kit and she's asleep and he says, that
0: says a lot. He
1: says, like, till the heavens fall down to oh, her.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and that happened in Ennis's run. So, like, we have different interpretations of the character, but, like, I think that the fact, like, I think that he means it. He just can't express it. Um, he being Constantine, not Garth Ennis. I don't claim to know Garth Ennis, um, nor do I claim to know John Constantine, thankfully. Um, I don't see Constantine as a character who expects or believes that he deserves forgiveness. I think he believes that he deserves everything that's coming to him if it's terrible. Um, but he still wants to find a way out. Yeah. But I don't think that Ennis' interpretation is illegitimate or... Um, or nonsense or wrong because I think there's a lot of room for different interpretations of this character like I think that Simon Spurrier's take on the character is pretty well aligned with Jamie Delano's Mm -hmm. although why every post Delano writer pretends that Constantine doesn't like puns is a fucking mystery to me
0: the puns I was really like I missed the puns when I read this. Hopping one. on the astral plane remains
1: one of my favorite jokes in Hellblazer. Also, the time he fights a whale and says, call me Ishmael. I um, loved when the, he fought the guys that are all stuck together. The, the football guys and he's so just mocking funny. them. Oh, it was so good. Um, so that is a mystery to me. Why everybody's like, oh, I fucking he fucking hates puns. And I'm like, mm, I disagree. Um, but Garth Ennis's take on the character is a bit different in, in fairly subtle ways from the way that Delano writes him. Ennis's stories—we really only read like one here in *Dangerous Habits*, but this tracks for the rest of them that I have read as well. Um, They tend to emphasize like predominantly Christian, but arguably Abrahamic theology, um, whereas Delano brings in elements of uniquely British folklore. Uh, At times, Delano's horror almost becomes folk horror. Like there, Mm -hmm. there are elements of it that feel like folk horror. I would agree, um, or at least something like adjacent to folk horror. We didn't really read a lot of those stories for this episode, a lot of them come in in the fear machine and the family man. Um, But I would credit Delano as an early introduction to folk horror for me specifically. Like when I was reading this, I was like, Oh, I really like something about this. And then folk horror kind of scratches that same itch. And I don't think I've read much beyond Ennis aside from justice league dark, both the 2011 version and some of the newer issues. I did check out um, Rom V's, some of Rom V's issues, which I thought were fine. Um, Spurrier and then the single issue I read of Constantine Rise and Fall which I thought was fine and absolutely nothing more than that Um, but I feel like Constantine is a character who can work under a lot of different kinds of writers but who can also be easily I say misinterpreted here but I don't think that that's like entirely fair I think there's a lot of very legitimate interpretations of Constantine that can work but I certainly have a favorite Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe I'm the one doing the misinterpreting Uh, I cannot for the life of me find it but I am positive at one point in the early trades, or maybe it wasn't in, in uh, Sandman, or maybe it wasn't Swamp Thing, but I thought it was Swamp Thing, who is like inhabiting Constantine. I, it sounds like that's in the first volume when he's literally inhabiting Constantine's body, but it's not that I checked. Um, and he makes some remark about how annoying it is to be in the body of someone who cares so fucking much. Um what I think some interpretations of the character are missing is exactly that he doesn't get people killed because he does not care about them. He cares a lot, but he is always looking at the forest rather than the trees, right? Like hmm. um he it, which means he often does terrible things to people because he cares about because he is looking at the big picture. He can be callous for sure, but he isn't uncaring.
0: Question mm-hmm. I- since I had a hard time with the beginnings of this last one. You th- Does he send Kaz to just go fucking die? Yes. I literally was like, did he
1: literally just be like, I tricked you into dying. The the logic there is we are all going to die anyway. You might as well die like you. So you feel like okay. you're doing something. That's
0: that was sad. It was very sad. Um, it's like and like I said, he's especially because he goes straight from like, I have kids, so I have to do something. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, Chaz
1: is a good man. Was was a good man in some in in the show for example and in some i think in some of the comics chaz can't die mm. he dies for a little while and then he comes back um so to me like constantine is a character who can be callous for sure um but he isn't uncaring like the th- like i think a good example of this is the arc with richie in the computer right
0: <sighs> So the art on that one of his face was so good. Yeah. Like it just, that's a really good example of the art really helped carry that story. Yeah, Without it, it would have, his feelings would have felt, fell really flat. Yeah. So what happens in that arc is that Richie smokes
1: weed and gets ch- stuck in a computer don't fucking ask um he's stuck in the computer and what happens is his body burns up which means that he now only exists in the computer and constantine is very upset about this and instead of like being like hey richie what would you like me to do <laughs> he puts his own pain first and he's like i can't bear to tell him i'm just gonna unplug the computer <laughs> which <We're> just <laughs> fucked up <coughs> That's a fucked up thing to do. Don't get me wrong.
0: See, that could just kill him, and he doesn't know.
1: He doesn't know. I'm assuming
0: it didn't kill him. He comes back. Yeah, right. (laughs) But he comes back
1: later. Uh, He just
0: lives on the internet.
1: Yeah, he's not dead. He's just uh, he's just stuck in a computer. Um, but like the reason that he does that is because he he feels he feels so bad that he can't tell his friend that he died, so he unplugs the computer again. Fucked up thing to do and but not he feels bad but it's because it's because he is once again consumed by guilt because it's his own it's his fucking fault um you know that like you don't have to like that character i'm not i'm not arguing that my interpretation is the correct one but that is what i like about the character yeah that's um, a standout story for me if you write constantine as a character who truly does not give a shit about people then you are writing a constantine that does not interest me um and i think that is why i don't love every interpretation of Constantine I I like this very specific version
0: I think that if he didn't care about everything the jokes would hit very differently and it would wouldn't feel it wouldn't feel good like yeah like it would be hard for not not that it would be hard for me to no, it might be hard for me to enjoy those jokes like if he just didn't care Mm -hmm. they would feel very cold yeah and I think that's how some people read them um, which I think
1: is the reason that while I enjoy Ennis' stories overall, his take on Constantine does not resonate with me the way that like Delano and his weird shit or Spurrier's take on the character do. I mean, like, look at how upset he is when he thinks that the man in the flat cap has killed Nat and his and his other friends. Like he's so fucking mad. He's mad even when Tommy dies. Tommy sucks and he's still upset. He's like, You killed my friends? As if that
0: hasn't happened. <laughs> Every, to him I mean, at every stage of his life tommy but i don't think he's a hundred percent against sleeping with him <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, me too.
1: Um, you just can't talk. Yeah, we we haven't talked about. I mean, he thinks that they did sleep together. He do, yeah, he does. Um, we have He's not like disgusted. He's just kinda like, ah, oh, don't tell me we did this. Yeah, he's 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 disgusted at his own lack of taste, but <laughs> not at the idea yeah. just of sleeping with Tommy Wiltry. We haven't talked about him as a bisexual character really, but that is part of his history. There was a line in a guest issue in 1992 about him having had boyfriends, um, but Brian Azzarello is actually the one who who had him having sex with a man during his run like it is he is canonically a bisexual character we can talk more about that in the next episode um This is a quote from Monstrous Markets, the neoliberal gothic and graphic novels by Justin D. Van. Uh, Jamie Delano, another British writer, started writing the Hellblazer comic starring John Constantine in 1988. In his initial run, he depicted Constantine as a working class hero, a magician that inhabited London colored gray and brown, a radical departure from from bright four color superhero comics of the time articulating a vision of magic as a discourse that can be mastered by working class and subaltern voices as a means of harnessing power against the powerful. Magical rules exist outside juridical and economic systems of risk and reward. These rules have their own economy based on words themselves. And so they are accessible to the masses who through magical discourses are shown to have powerful voices and an avenue for them to be heard outside of the marketplace. So this is really the crux of what I love about this character. All of these like the hellblazer stories that I really love are fundamentally stories about using cleverness and whatever tools you can to upset the powerful whether that's a powerful demon or the predatory nephew of the queen or whatever, right? Like they're all fundamentally about using whatever power you have to disrupt the status quo. There's this very famous and this is going to feel like a left turn, but I'll come back mm-hmm. to I'll come back to it. There is a very famous bit of what is essentially folklore about the character of Constantine himself, which is that numerous people who have written him claim to have seen him in real life. This is not a one-off occasion, and there's a reason I'm bringing this up, aside from it being something that I find very fun. Um, (laughs) So this is another quote from The Secret History and Uncertain Future of comics character John Constantine by Abraham Reisman. Um, This is going to use a word that has a lot Stronger meaning in the US than it oh. does in England. So bear with me. I'm going to use this. It's not a word that actually bothers me all that much, unless somebody's like calling me it, but I know it does bother some people. Um, so please know that when I'm using this word, um, context is that it is used differently in the UK and also... It's just like uh, fanny here.
0: (laughs) Fanny here is nothing.
1: Very different meanings. So this is a quote from that same article by Abraham Abraham Reisman who writes "Uh, Jamie Delano ran into him him being Constantine during a stroll near the British Museum back when he was writing the first few arcs on Constantine's solo series Hellblazer. The figure... This is a quote The figure caught my eye and cocked his head flicked the ash from a ciggy and continued without stopping Delano told me. For a few moments I considered following but thought better of it I mean what the fuck would I say and what trouble might one get into Uh, Peter Milligan saw Constantine at a party around 2009 and rushed after him only to find he would disappeared Brian Azzarello saw him at a Chicago bar in the early aughts but avoided him the thing about John is the last thing you'd want to be is his friend he told me And as far as, I've been able, as far as I've been able to deduce, Constantine's only ever spoken to one writer, the man who created him, Alan Moore. According to Moore, he ran into John years after he'd stopped writing him and the wisecracking mage whispered 13 words to him. I'll tell you the ultimate secret of magic. Any cunt could do it. Now, first, I sincerely do not care if these stories are true. If they are true, I don't want to know because I don't want to live in the world that John Constantine lives in. We already kind of do. We have enough problems. I don't also want to think about whatever is going on there.
0: I the mean, th- it'd be nice to be like, well, demons are running the, the government, so we'll just exercise them. But the problem is that the
1: demons were not the problem. The, the problem existed before the demons got there. They're just exploiting the initiative. Anyway, I don't want to live in that world. Um, so don't, if, that is, if that is true, definitely don't tell me. If it's not true, don't tell me that either. I want to live in this gray space where I don't know. Um, we have enough problems. The reason I brought this up is that last quote. Any cunt could do it, right? Setting aside the vulgarity, um, which is character appropriate, uh, let me tell you, another big struggle with reading Hellblazer folded into the DC universe is when he can't swear <laughs> or like Legends of Tomorrow turned it turned the not being able to smoke into a running joke, which is very funny. And even in the movie, like the nicotine patch, very funny. Um, but like the the like I don't know, it's a non-vulgar
0: Constantine doesn't work for me. Um, well, especially like it feels very much a part of like the politics sometimes.
1: Yeah, you got to be a little gross, and like that comes up in the new run too, where he's telling these off-color jokes to the wrong the wrong people. Um. Anyway, that sort of ethos that anyone can do it. Um, is the, that idea that magic is accessible to everybody is a key part of what I enjoy about this character and about the series. Not everybody can be John Constantine and thank God for that. Um, but everybody is capable of accessing the kind of magic that resists oppression and exploitation and kind of embracing the the everyday magic of a salmon run. Or a bird migration or any one of the number of things that like we we can kind of explain how it works, but that doesn't erase the mystery and magic of it. Um, because what Constantine does most is stand up to, you know, oppression and exploitation. And he uses the skills that he has to back it up. As we see in the selections that we read for this episode, magic is not super heroics. It's cleverness or it's curiosity or it's a salmon run. We cannot literally all do magic, especially when you get into Constantine being folded into the DC universe, which is a whole different animal. But that does not mean we get to not fight against these things. That drive to fight, that ability to fight, to me, is magic. And that absolute fucking corniness is what I love about this series. It's 2022. We're embracing corniness. We're all corny. It's time to get over it. Let us all be as corny as talking about love and salmon runs as magic I'll be as corny as a tortilla chip yes thank you for coming to my TED talk about corniness and John Constantine
0: I will be here forever to talk about this Um, Missy also is dead a living dead so
1: yes a lot of people don't know this um, but it is is true she does not breathe I do not breathe she
0: eats but only forcefully because she loves food
1: that is true that is true Mm -hmm. so
0: that's what I have to say about Hellblazer I could say a lot more I didn't talk about
1: noir at all (laughs) Which is surprising. I know. It was just, there were other things that
0: I felt would be more useful to be. We all, we but, know, we know I love noir. You can email us. Or, and Missy will create the fan club with you. She will talk with you extensively about it and be upset when she has to do something um, like responsibility. Yeah, I will. It's true. Um, do you have anything else to say? No, I really liked it. I think there's no surprise. My favorite stories were the one where it's in the computer, the one with the girls. Um, that the guy killed yeah and uh the mermaid one they're all very sad but all these stories are sad so there's <laughs> none of them where you're like oh, i feel great after yeah, reading that no um, um yeah but i the mermaid one was definitely definitely my favorite like i was very engr- and when it was done i was sad um so yes that was that's hellblazer i'll have more to say in
1: the next episode i i don't think i'll run out of things to say about hellblazer ever
0: uh, is it your favorite comic series
1: yes or character i guess yes it's i would say he's probably my favorite comics character mm-hmm. um and it doesn't hurt that a lot he appears in other comics i really love like mm-hmm. he plays a pretty like the story that he's in in sandman is one of my favorites mm-hmm. um and like his appearances in that i really like mm-hmm. so really i'm just lucky that he shows up in at things At least you got like. something. At least I've got something. Something to hold on to. Boy, howdy. It's, sometimes it's fucking rough to be a Hellblazer fan. <laughs> um, that's it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com which has all of our previous episodes um, and a link to our podcast studio. Podcast Network is what it's called. Podcast Network. It doesn't have a link to our podcast studio because that is my office in my house and you cannot come here. Um, our podcast studio podcast network our podcast network is penwich studio we have lots of great shows on the network check them out it's true um just
0: cool all around
1: if you like this podcast consider leaving us a review you can do that on your podcast network of or not jesus fucking christ what's wrong with me you can fi- you can do that on wherever you listen to podcasts whether it's itunes or apple podcasts whatever they're calling it these days or an app that you use i don't know i don't know how it works it's
0: new technologies
1: but we love a review we love a good review and we think about bad reviews before we go to sleep at night. It's true. And wonder what we could have done better. Um, but that doesn't, mean you shouldn't, you should, you, that doesn't mean you can't be critical. We've had this discussion before. Yeah. You can be critical. Be nice, though. Be nice and critical. Unless they're like shitheads. Encourage the thing you love to do better. And the thing you love is me. And you're telling me to do better. I think you do just fine. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, next time. We're talking about Constantine some more. Like I said, I fucking deserve it. Um, We're going to be talking about the show starring Matt Ryan and we're going to be talking about the movie starring Keanu Reeves. And I hope you're ready for some spicy takes. Um, After that, we're going to be doing I Have Skins on the schedule. So we'll be doing skins, both the UK and US versions. Um, So good. Man, that show fucking holds
0: up. Even Cassie, weird Cassie. Oh, I love Cassie. I cried at her episode at the end. Cassie can do no wrong. It's true. I know. She literally sits and goes, "Wow, wow." And I'm like, "She's so,
1: she's so manipulative and in this and mean in the second season." I'm like, "Girl, you deserve it. (laughs) Give Cassie a gun." Like I just give
0: Cassie a gun. (laughs) I
1: love Cassie. I would die for Cassie. Um, She's so good. So anyway, those are my my feelings.
0: Oh my god, I love Anwar. They're definitely my favorite. That boy,
1: that man, their teacher, that baby boy. Um. After that, we'll be doing fruits baskets, the basket, the manga, and then we will doing fruits basket, the shows, Um, both of them, both of them, and then eclipse.
0: Because I done. We're only doing those ones, huh? Are we? we, We're only doing the three, right? We're not doing the. No, we're doing Breaking Dawn. Aren't there three total? No, they're four.
1: What the fuck? I thought there were three. No. (laughs) Eclipse is number three. Breaking Dawn is number four.
0: Oh, for some reason, I thought there were three. And then there was the from his side. No. Maybe I'm thinking of... uh, No, that wasn't three either. Anyways. Never mind. I think there were three Fifty Shades of Grey and then the fourth gray. Maybe I'm thinking of Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. same, Same story. Same thing.
1: Um... So that's... And then if you are a Patreon supporter at the $5 up level, you can vote on what's next. Last time I checked, Jaws was winning, which I'm jazzed about. Also, eventually,
0: you will get a podcast about Austin Powers. Yeah, sorry. It's going to be good, though. It'll be worth the wait. It will be worth the wait. We have watched two of them two of them there are three yes (laughs) they're not four
1: I've never seen the last one so I
0: don't know if I've seen that's the one
1: with Beyonce
0: oh I have seen it
1: and I think it's supposed to be the worst one I have seen it but Beyonce is great okay that's important and it has a good opening number from what I remember um so that's it thank you for indulging me Mary I mean, I'm, there are plenty of things that we've done that are like this. I'm glad that you enjoyed it, though. I did. I was like, oh, my God. It's one of those things where I'm like, this is something I love so much. And what if Mary is like, this fucking sucks?
0: I don't <laughs> think there's been so many. <coughs> there aren't many things where I'm like, this fucking sucks. Usually <laughs> what I about B-movie? You know what? I still, I, I thought. What about Shrek? I, there are things I like about <laughs> Shrek. There are plenty of things I like about Shrek. Mm-hmm. Um. But, yeah, no, I liked it, especially, that mermaid story was definitely my favorite, which yeah. is, I think, a surprise to zero people no. who know me. All right, catch you on the flip side. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far and yet here we are in defiance of lovecraft laughing through the darkness the lovely craftians is an all ladies call of cthulhu actual play podcast with horror humor and no small amount of chaos set in an occasionally familiar modern day chicago brought to you by wampus house productions and the penwich studio network you can find the lovelies on spotify apple podcasts or your favorite podcatcher or anytime over at lovelycraftians.com and remember you never roll sanity alone here.